Please now turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, and we'll read from verse 17. Now, in the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, My teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit now, that he would come and help us to properly read Mark, understand, and inwardly digest your holy word, that we might apply it to our lives, that we might worship you accordingly, and live in a way that is consistent with it. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, things are dark. The shadow of the cross, which has loomed over the story, at least since chapter 16, has grown darker. The storm has closed in, and we know now that it won't be long before we see Jesus arrested and humiliated and crucified, just as He had warned His disciples. The beginning of this chapter has marked a significant moment of transition in how Matthew tells his story. And remember when we looked at this three weeks ago or so, that little formula that Matthew uses in verse 1 indicates to the reader that a definitive moment has now been reached in this story. And up until now, Matthew would transition away from Jesus' discourses by saying, when Jesus had finished these sayings. But in verse 1, he writes with great significance, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. It's Matthew's way, writing as he did, without chapter divisions or verse numbers or punctuation. It's Matthew's way of communicating to his readers that we have now moved on to something new, and, and we, the readers, need to sit up and take notice. And with what we read in the following verses, we see that this new thing is the closing in of Jesus' enemies. 
their hatred for him has, has simmered away in the background for most of this gospel. From early on in, in Jesus' ministry, we have known that the ruling authorities have hated Jesus. You remember that, that, that significant moment when the crippled man was lowered down through the roof to Jesus, and he pronounced the man's sins forgiven. You remember the Pharisees, how they recoiled at hearing Jesus say that and, and ac accused him of blasphemy in pronouncing this man's sins forgiven. That hatred has, has been there, just simmering away in the background throughout this entire gospel, but now it's, it's come to a, to a boil. Since Jesus has, has entered Jerusalem, since He has attacked the honor of the high priest, since He has undermined the position of the religious elites, all of this hatred has now come to a, a rapid boil, and we know that the end is near. And with the first 16 verses of, of chapter 26, Matthew shows us what it all means. The opponents of Jesus are now actively conspiring together as to how they might plot to destroy Jesus while all the time politicking in such a way that they're able to retain their position of authority and, and honor. Matthew shows us that their resentment and hostility that has simmered away has now come. It has given away to them actually establishing definite plans as to how they might lynch Jesus and get away scot-free. It's clear. The time of Jesus' teaching is over. All of His sayings are finished, and we are very clearly in those dark and foreboding final hours of our Lord's life. But before we see this diabolical plan swing into action, before we see these forces of evil rise and come against our Lord, this incredible shaft of light breaks through these gathering storm clouds and reminds us of the hope that underpins all that is happening. And have you ever watched a storm gather? Maybe you've, you've stood on the beach and there's been a, a storm offshore and you've got those black and, and gray foreboding clouds. They're just growing thicker and thicker in the sky, almost, it seems, turning the day into night as the sun is being blotted out. But have you ever stood there and you've watched this and then, and then suddenly a gap has opened up and a shaft of light has come suddenly down to the earth. Beams. Some people, I think, call those beams angel stairs. I remember as a child, the little folk tale that went around was that this was angels descending to get the souls of those who had died to take them back up into heaven. They're not, of course, angel stairs. Angels don't need stairs, and that's not how souls get into heaven. But nonetheless, it is a good metaphor for what's going on here. As this storm gathers, as these clouds grow thicker and thicker, as, as the darkness almost overtakes the, the narrative, 
What we find in this passage that we're looking at this morning is this sudden glimpse into heaven, this sudden shaft of light that comes and penetrates the darkness and shows us the good hand of God that is working even this greatest of all evils to achieve the ultimate good. And so, the Passover, the, the, the scene that we are given here, is Jesus and His disciples eating the Passover together, right? It's ostensibly, that's what they've come to Jerusalem to do. Now, we know because of what Jesus has told His disciples that He has other business in this city, that He is going there to be arrested, humiliated, crucified, buried, and then to rise again. But on the face of it, Jesus and His disciples are in Jerusalem, just like the thousands of pilgrims who are in the city, they are there to eat the Passover. Right? In the first century, it was the expectation that all Israelite males would come to Jerusalem three times a year for worship. Regardless of where they lived in the diaspora, there was an expectation that three times a year they would come to Jerusalem to worship. They were expected to come and be present at the Feast of Tabernacles, in which Israel remembered God's faithfulness to them as they wandered in the wilderness. They were to come to Jerusalem and gather together at the Feast of Weeks, otherwise known as Pentecost, which marked the completion of the barley harvest and in which the, the people of God rejoiced in God's provision for them. But without a doubt, the most important feast was that of the Passover. This was the great feast, really the definitive feast of Israel, in which they gathered together to remember their redemption from, from Egypt. And so, simply as faithful Jews, Jesus and His disciples have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. They are part of this great gathering that has swollen the population of Jerusalem from its normal 50,000 or so to something up 180, 200,000 uh, people. They are there as part of this enormous mass of humanity that have come to eat this feast. And it is simply that logistical reality that is the background for how Jesus and His disciples find a place to eat the feast. It, it seems, from what Matthew has told us in chapter 21, that Jesus and His disciples are staying outside of Jerusalem, that they're staying in, in Bethany at the home of Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus. But the feast itself, by law, had to be eaten within the boundaries of Jerusalem. And so, it seems that Jesus has made arrangements with a homeowner, a, a property owner, to be able to use a, a room in his house to eat this Passover meal. And the disciples are to find this man by using what appear to be signals and code. Now, Mark tells us that the way they were to find this man was that they were to go into the city and look for a man who's carrying a, a water pot doesn't mean a lot to us, but in the first century, men carried water skins, women carried water pots. And so, this was the code. They were to look for the man, and he carried the pot, and they were to go up, and they were to, 
to say to him what appears to be this prearranged phrase, and they were to make the connection and, and ushered into this place. And all of it seems to indicate that Jesus had, just like he had done with the donkey's colt, on which he rode into Jerusalem, that he had made these arrangements ahead of time, and this code is designed to help the disciples complete the arrangement, while all the time retaining a sense of anonymity. Jesus is in control of these last hours of his life. There's to be no chance that the authorities will just stumble upon where he is, that they will be unduly alerted as to his whereabouts. Jesus needs to eat this feast with his disciples, and so he makes arrangements that he can do it in secrecy. It is important that Jesus eat this meal with his disciples. It's important simply on the level that they fulfill the law. But on a personal level, it's important that they get this opportunity to sit and eat together one last time. Remember, Jesus is a, a man. The disciples are men. And for three years, they have been together almost in, inseparably. By this point, these, these are the best of friends. They have, they have spent virtually every waking moment together. They've eaten together. They've traveled together. The disciples have walked and they've talked with Jesus. They've listened to Him. They've watched Him. Perhaps at this point, there's, there's no one in the world with whom these men have such deep fellowship and love as, as they have with, with Jesus. And so, because of this, this deep bond, knowing that His time was at hand, knowing that but betrayer was in their midst, and that he would soon do his darkest of deeds and hand Jesus over to the authorities, it was just on a human level important that Jesus have this time to say goodbye to his friends. One last meal together to sit and enjoy each other's company. One last meal to enjoy, and you understand this is a scene of of intimacy, right? This act of taking a piece of meat or bread and dipping it into a common bowl of sauce on the table, this was regarded as, a, as an act of, of extreme intimacy, something that's normally just regarded for, for familial relationships. And so, this is an incredibly moving scene that Matthew shows us. This this covenant of friendship that exists between these men gathered round this table. And so it is important that Jesus eat this meal with his disciples. But of course, this isn't just any meal, this is the meal. This is the meal more than any other meal that, that spoke of what was happening and have spoke of what was about to happen to Jesus in the course of the night that, that lay ahead. You understand, there, there's no sleep now. There's no rest from this point on. And Jesus is bringing them here to give them one last lesson in what is about to happen. In the midst of this darkness, Jesus brings this shaft of light to illuminate for His disciples what is about to happen in the next few hours. 
Passover, the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is a feast that looked back to the greatest deliverance of God's people. That momentous occasion in which God had taken His people. That people that had entered Israel as just a family. Just Jacob and his sons. But that had become a nation so enormous that by the time of Moses, the entire economy and security of Egypt was dependent upon the Israelite population. It was, of course, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that his descendants would become a mighty kingdom whose numbers would be like that of the stars in the sky. But, but here was Israel. By the time of Moses in slavery, beaten down, enslaved by an insecure and suspicious Pharaoh. But, but God remembered His covenant with Abraham. And He remembered His people. And we've said this before, the Hebrew conception of remembering is a lot more active than our conception of remembering. I can remember that my keys are on my desk. Although I can't actually remember if my keys are on my desk, but hypothetically, I can remember my keys are on my desk and do nothing about it. But to a Hebrew mind, to remember that means to go get them. And so God remembered His people in Egypt, not in some kind of theoretical, oh, that's where I left them, but in an active sense. He pursued His people. He went after them, and He brought them out of their slavery. And you remember the phrase of Exodus 19, He lifted them and bore them along as if on eagles' wings. And then He constituted them as His own people, His own holy nation, distinct from the world, marked by their redemptive union with Him. And so, as Israel ate this meal as they gathered for this feast, they remembered that redemption. They remembered this redemption that defined them and shaped them and formed their self-understanding that gave them their identity. This feast of unleavened bread, this Passover, it's a time when, when they remembered that, that God is a God of, of hesed, a word that means some I'll put it loyal love of covenant faithfulness, steadfast love, a God who keeps covenant with his people, a God who is steadfastly faithful to his promises. At this meal they remembered that their God is a God who, despite the circumstances and situations that might surround his people, will always do what he has said. And will always, as Paul would go on to say in Romans 8, 28, work all things together for the good of them that love Him. And so this Passover, this Feast of Unleavened Bread, this was a time of great celebration as they remembered salvation past. But you understand it's also a time of great anticipation as they look for salvation future. As they looked for God to come and finally and fully fulfill His covenant promises. A time when they looked for that loyal love of God for His people to be fully and finally manifest. As one commentator, William Lane, put it, 
He said the celebration of the Passover was always marked by excitement and the high hope that it would be fulfilled by God's intervention once more. It was observed as a night of watching unto the Lord, in the conviction that in the night they were redeemed, and in that night they will be redeemed in the future. And so this was a meal of watching and waiting, a time of almost palpable expectation for over 700 years by now Israel has been living under the humiliation of subjugation to a foreign power. Since 586 BC, all of Israel has been living under the humiliation of subjugation to a foreign power. And on this night, they rehearsed the redemption that their fathers and mothers in the faith had known from Egypt. If they were weary and downcast this night, this meal, as it walked them through the gospel story, as they sang the songs, as they ate the lamb, as they ate the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, as they drank the four cups of wine, this meal brought them face to face once again with the hope of the gospel that their God is a Redeemer, and their God is faithful, and He will not forget His promises. It was the great hope that a salvation would come, and the people of God would again be released as the first century Jews sat and ate this meal. It was with the expectation that even soon they would be released to finally and fully enjoy God's salvation and that they would finally and fully be brought into that holy kingdom ruled over by David's greater son, and they would finally and fully find union and communion with God. This night, this is a profound moment. If you had gone for a walk through the streets of Jerusalem on this evening, you would have found them deserted. All 180,000, 200,000 in rooms like this, fixing their hearts on the gospel. But in this room, as Jesus and His disciples eat this meal, and as they remember all that it signifies, as they worship together around this table, Jesus does something extraordinary. In the midst of the darkness of this evening, the, the literal darkness as night has fallen, the spiritual darkness that has grown deeper with Jesus' identification of Judas as his betrayer, one who sits at this feet and professes devotion to him by dipping in this bowl. In the midst of it all, this great shaft of light comes bursting through those storm clouds as Jesus tells his disciples that the great anticipation that in the night of Passover, redemption would come again. He tells them it is coming. It is being fulfilled in Him and in what is about to happen to Him. As Jesus eats this meal with His disciples, He tells them that He is the fulfillment of everything this Passover anticipates. As Jesus takes this bread, as He takes this cup, He tells His disciples that the Passover expectation will be finally fulfilled in the breaking of His own body and in the spilling of His own blood. 
the death that Jesus has repeatedly foretold his disciples about, much to their confusion and even objection, he tells them it is necessary because this is the way in which the great expectation of God's chesed would be brought about. This it would be in his death, in the spilling of his blood, that that great loyal love of God would be finally and fully seen. You see, the significance of the Passover was rooted in substitutionary atonement. And the final plague that God brought on Egypt before He carried His people out of their slavery in Egypt, in the final plague, Israel were warned that a terrible judgment would be coming upon the land of Egypt, and that this last plague would be none other than the, than the death of the firstborns. It's a plague which I think, if we're honest, can seem too horrific for us to comprehend, that God would sanction the slaughter of the firstborn throughout the land of, of Egypt, that God would command a night of, of mourning and, and wailing and, and death. But you understand, it was perfectly just and righteous. It was an eye for an eye. It was a tooth for a tooth. The Egyptians had held Israel, whom God describes as his firstborn son, a, a name that described their position of, of honor and intimacy with God. By enslaving Israel, the Egyptians had, had condemned God's own firstborn to a life of, of living death in that slavery. By enslaving Israel, Egypt had symbolically put to death the firstborn Son of God, and on top of that, they had repeatedly refused to listen to those nine warning plagues that God had brought, those plagues that proclaimed His steadfast love for His people, that proclaimed His unshakable resolve to save them out of this slavery. But before that last plague came, a warning was issued, an offer of mercy was extended to Israel, but by implication to everyone and anyone who would put their faith in Israel's God. And they were told that if they sacrificed a lamb, and they put its blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of their house, then the curse of God would pass over that house, and they would be saved. That lamb would be considered a substitute for the firstborn. It was mercy in the midst of judgment. It was grace in the midst of justice. And as Jesus and His disciples sit around this table and they eat this feast, it was instituted as a perpetual reminder of this grace and justice of God. Jesus says to them, it is all pointing to Him. He is the greater Lamb who will stand in the place of His people. It will be His blood that will cover them so that the justice of God against our sins can pass over us, so that we can be rescued in the true and greater exodus, and we can be brought out of, our, of the slavery to our sin as if on eagle's wings, borne along and brought into the perfect fellowship of union with God. 
As Jesus takes this bread and breaks it, He gives it to His disciples, and He says to them that it represents His body. His body that just like that of the Lamb that will be broken in just a few hours, as He will stand substitute for His people, bearing the wrath and justice of God against our sins. As Jesus takes the cup, He says to them that it represents His blood, His blood that will be poured out to inaugurate and establish the new covenant, that great and final covenant in which God brings all of His previous covenants together, but then adds the missing piece, saying that He will forgive and forget the sins of His people and remember them no more. That promise, that new covenant promise, is one that we cannot get our minds around. How can the perfect divine mind forget anything and remember it no more? But yet it is what God says, that in the new covenant there simply will be no remembrance of sins. There will be no trace of your sin. There will be no record of wrongdoing. How can God do that? How can God pass over sins? How can He forget them and blot them from the divine record and not compromise his justice. Well, Jesus says, this is how. By Jesus standing substitute in our place and bearing the full weight of the law against our sin, God's curse poured out on Him is able to pass over us, and so that we are able to instead simply receive the riches of His blessing. And you understand that's what we remember as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. As we gather around this table, as we eat this broken bread, as we drink of this cup, we come to remember that the fullness of our redemption is found in the broken body and spilt blood of Jesus and nowhere else we come to remember that it was at the cross that that chesed of God, that loyal love of God was put on its most magnificent display. We come to this table to remember that we are fundamentally a redeemed people, that our identities are wrapped up in the knowledge that because of the death of Christ, because Jesus stood in our place, because Jesus stood in, in your place and died our death, we have been passed over, and we have been brought out of our slavery, and we have been brought into this perfect kingdom of life. Listen, if you are a Christian here this morning, if you're a member in good standing in an evangelical church, then you're welcome to come and join us around this table. It is not our table. It's Jesus' table. But listen to what Jesus says in our passage. He doesn't just invite you to come and eat at His table. He commands you to come and eat at this table. Like a loving parent commands its child to eat and drink, so Jesus comes and commands us to be here. The sacrament is part of our spiritual diet. It is our sustenance. 
We come here to once again behold the wonders of the gospel. We come again here to be confronted by the wonder of our union and communion with God. But if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in Christ, then please let this bread and this cup pass you by as they are served. What we are about to do is an act of worship that only those with a true and active faith in Christ can engage in. This is serious. So serious that the Apostle Paul would go on to to say, would go so far as to say that for you to eat this bread and drink this cup would be for you to eat and drink judgment upon yourself. But hear what I have said and see this table spread out before you and come with us and put your faith in Jesus and you too will find the forgiveness of your sins. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for our Lord Jesus. How we thank you for his willingness to go to the cross, to stand as our substitute, that we might be passed over and that we might be forgiven, that we might be called the people of God, constituted as a holy nation set apart for your glory. Oh Lord, we pray that you would continue to beat this gospel into our heads and into our hearts. For we struggle, we confess at times to believe it. It seems too magnificent, too good to be true. But yet it is. It is wonderfully true. And so we pray that you would continue to minister to us now, Father, especially as we come to partake of this sacrament. We thank you for this bread. We thank you for this cup. And we pray that as we take this sacrament together this morning, that by your Spirit you would come that you would commune with us and that you would build us up in our most holy faith. Father, come and nourish your people, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.